Welcome to Clean Tech Forward, a foresight podcast where we explore clean tech customers, capital, and Canada's path to net zero. Tune in to learn more about Canada's most exciting clean tech startups, industry success stories, investor insights, and academic initiatives as we accelerate the growth and impact of clean tech together. Welcome to Clean Tech Forward. I'm Jeanette Jackson, CEO of Foresight Canada, and your host today. All around the world, scientists, researchers, advocates, and activists are making a tremendous amount of noise about climate change and the dangers that it poses to the stability of our society. And in response, governments at all levels and companies of all sizes have made pledges to commit to cleaner, more sustainable practices, reducing emissions, and beginning transitioning towards a net zero future. However, we're seeing a disconnect between the intentions of some of these organizations and the actions taken to ensure that we're on track to achieve net zero by 2050. This is commonly referred to as the climate action gap. In essence, it's the difference between the level of action required to mitigate and adapt to climate change and the actual efforts and policies in place to achieve those goals. In some cases, this gap is manifesting as companies and countries are reversing, delaying, or abandoning their pledges altogether. For example, despite publicly announcing a plan to achieve net zero by 2060, China has been approving new coal power projects at a pace equivalent to two per week. Likewise, Australia has been approving new coal mining projects despite passing the Climate Change Act in 2022, which doubles the target for emissions reductions by 2030 and sets the goal of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. And earlier this year, the oil giant Shell announced it would be doubling down on profit drivers like oil and gas, despite its public commitment to achieve net zero by 2050. There are a number of factors that are contributing to the delay or abandonment of pledges and climate action. Things like a lack of political will to implement urgent climate policy, the complexity and scale of the issues around climate change, and the economic interests, among other things, are all playing part. Solving climate change is an enormous challenge, but closing the climate action gap is absolutely necessary if we want to achieve our net zero ambitions. To help illuminate the complexity of the climate action gap and to discuss whether or not we can close it, I'll be speaking with Justin Bull. Justin is an adjunct professor at the UBC Sauter School of Business, the leader of Sustainability and Ethics Group, and the academic director of the newly established Center for Climate and Business Solutions. Here's a bit more on his background before we jump into our discussion about the climate action gap. I teach a thousand students a year on various elements of ethics and sustainability. That's my my passion and, and purpose in this world. But I also am very privileged to get to be a part of the CDL Vancouver program. I'm a moderator of the CDL climate and CDL minerals stream. And so I get to learn a lot about climate tech and, and mineral and mining tech, which is very exciting to me. I'm also a very proud board member for the Talaman Nation and Nikasli Nation, two indigenous communities in, in British Columbia, where I help support their economic sovereignty and strategies, as well as another organization called Advantage BC. And in that organization, we're creating financial mechanisms for investing more in the retrofitting of the built environment. So across all of those things, I'm animated by a central theme of like climate. We get this one right, we're in good shape. We get this one wrong all of our efforts elsewhere start to really get a lot harder and face a lot of resistance. So I'm pretty obsessed with it. And I believe you also spearheaded the foundation of the new Center for Climate and Business oh. Solutions at UBC. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that's all about? 
So we're trying to create a new think tank here on campus with a real focus on, on, on climate solutions. Everyone's worried about climate. Everyone's full of anxiety about climate. And I think we have to figure out what can we do about climate. So there's three key pillars to our work. The first is, of course, and the obvious one, reductions. And our thesis is that everyone wants to reduce their footprint, but measuring their footprint, setting a baseline, uh, figuring out what standards they should apply, uh, be applying to their measurement strategies, trying to figure out how this is going to lower their cost of capital or lower their insurance. All those like business problems associated with reductions. What's the best technology, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got a lot of programming that we're sort of developing right now and excited to launch, which is going to help students work with companies to reduce their environmental footprint, specifically around GHGs. We're also very interested in the, in the problem of adaptation. Even if we had a magic wand and stopped emitting all emissions tomorrow, we're going to have to adapt to a more unstable world. And so that means largely about repricing a whole sorts, all sorts of risks, risk in our mortgage markets, risk in our infrastructure, risk around project deployment. And so we're really curious about the business solutions that are going to help encourage climate adaptation. Finally, we're very interested in climate regeneration. We need a version of an economy that actually supports climate action and moving beyond decarbonization to actually, you know, healing our planet, if you so to speak. And I know that sounds a bit pie in the sky, but I think it's actually vital for us to think about how can we have economic systems that don't just wave away inconveniences as negative externalities, but economic systems that actually value clean air, systems that value clean water, systems that value a rich biodiversity around us. Because at the end of the day, we know that those are the things that are most important. There is a line of thinking now that some believe we have already entered an accelerated adaptation stage, that implementing climate solutions is a form of adaptation, and the adoption of clean technology is how we have to adapt to the issues of climate change moving forward. Would you agree with that statement? No, I would not. Ah, because even if we adopted all the technology in the world, we're locked into, let's just say from the Greenland ice sheet, I think the estimates I saw is about 38 centimeters of sea level rise from the Greenland ice sheet this century alone. Uh, even if we adopted all that technology, there's really likely to be significant contributions to sea level rises from West Antarctica and other regions. And that's assuming the successful adoption at scale and arresting of all uh, sort of CO2 emissions by 2050. If we start to model out pathways where we hit tipping points, where we start to sort of anticipate sort of positive feedback loops and the destabilization of certain, you know, I think ice sheets are particularly important, but there could be other th things that start to destabilize as well. I think what we're just waking up to is how much ecological volatility that we're going to confront. So just from an oceans level perspective alone, 38 centimeters of sea level rise means that the Vancouver seawall doesn't exist anymore, right? It can't survive high tide. And so you have to be figuring out what's your adaptation strategy there. Uh, port infrastructure, airport infrastructure, low-lying assets in coastal regions around the world look particularly risky. But so do assets that rely on, let's say, seasonal regularity. If you're an agricultural investor in South Asia and you assume the monsoon is going to be regularly appearing and making your rice farming productive, and then suddenly you get a decade where it doesn't show up. That's a massive adaptation problem. And so I certainly agree that adapting to climate means adopting climate tech as quickly as possible. And we need to be doing that, deploy, deploy, deploy. But I also think that we are, frankly, unprepared for a future that's already happened and that there's a a whole bunch of additional risk and volatility and most in the ecological system on which our society resides that we're not even really wrapping our head around yet because we've achieved, we've hit, we've gone beyond certain tipping points already. 
And it seems likely to me that unless we see a dramatic change in, in behaviors of markets in the next six years, we're likely to hit more tipping points. And so I think the adaptation process is, is, is just starting off and we're going to see that largely play out in insurance markets where insurers are going to start aggressively repricing their risk exposure to all of the negative effects of climate. Uh, I think that's a great segue into some of the folks that we had at our first ever Climate Economy Summit last month, uh, where we started to lean into the conversation around the climate action gap, and we had some insurance folks there. Why uh, don't you share with everyone your thoughts on what that summit is really all about and why it's important for us to understand some of these details? I think our motivation, or my motivation at least, in participating in that event was to say, let's let's move beyond conferences and summits and webinars that feel like everything is great. It's all kittens and unicorns. And if we just if we just got to it, we'd solve this climate problem without recognizing that successful climate action really requires us to look at some of the structures that our economy reside on. And, and and recognize that successful climate action is going to re- is 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 going to force us to to interrogate some of the assumptions about our world that might not seem totally you know valid. So after the summit, I was talking to a a participant who owns a beautiful rural property, and is very concerned that increased fire risk in Canada's land base is going to make it harder for them to insure their home. And they thought this was just so profoundly unjust. There was this sense of entitlement. Like I should have my rural property insurable. The government should step in. They should subsidize this. It's I. It's my right as a property owning Canadian to have my risk protected. And that's the kind of assumption that I think is going to crumble in the face of, let's say, for example, persistent increased wildfire risk, which I think at this point in time, we have to just accept as normal and, and routine as opposed to something new. It is something we're going to have to live with. And, and I don't know, for example, that a beautiful residence in a rural property survive, surrounded by combustible trees is in any way entitled to wildfire insurance. Or if it is entitled to that insurance, it might be more expensive than the property itself. And so it's a perfect example of nobody wants to say the uncomfortable parts of climate out loud. Nobody wants to say that there might be losers, not just winners. No, Everyone wants to sit at the intersection of climate like it's just a great business opportunity, when in fact it, it is a great business opportunity. I don't think there's any denying that. But it's also a massive repricing of assets. It's wrapping our head around a whole new risk landscape that we're not used to. It's wrapping our head around the possibility that there's going to be way more volatility in all of the systems we rely on and that we don't know exactly how society is going to respond to that volatility. And it's also recognizing that successful climate action isn't always good politics, that the kind of durable political coalitions we need are going to be really hard to build if successful climate action, for example, means very aggressively pricing and walking away from very heavy sources of carbon emissions like fossil fuels. And so I think the Climate Economy Summit was largely about moving beyond the surface level conversations that make us feel warm and fuzzy about all the great things we're doing into places of discomfort. Because I think it's in those places of discomfort that we'll find the motivation to be more creative, more innovative, more ambitious, and more urgent in what we're trying to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just recall over the last 12 to 18 months sitting through these traditional quote-unquote economic summits, and there's nothing really new or controversial you can sink your teeth into. It was all interest rates are high. It's hard to find good people to, to fill certain jobs. Uh, it's expensive to own a home and, uh, you know, 
just tax for this, tax for that. But what does that mean if you're a consumer, if you're a small business owner, if you're head of some, you know, a corporate strategy around, you know, innovation, sustainability, uh, resiliency and competitive advantage? Like, what do all these things mean in the macroeconomic sense? Like, how do you place yourself into that? So that's why I, too, uh, was excited. You started to talk about some of the costs of not leaning in on clean tech and climate tech. Yet we are still seeing some companies and countries sometimes shifting or moving away from some of their commitments. Why do you think companies and countries are abandoning or walking back their lines and targets on climate pledges? Well, I think it's a good question. And we'd have to put all that in context. And so for some companies, for example, if you're asking them to cut off their nose to spite their face, i.e., you're a traditional fossil fuel producing company who for decades has known nothing but traditional processes for producing fossil fuels, and you are asked to transition, let's not be naive. That's wildly difficult. You're asking a company to bet on their own demise, so to speak, or at least the demise of the traditional business model. And, and oftentimes they don't have the culture, they don't have the human capital, and they don't have the vision that would actually lead them there. But I also think that what we're seeing is the limit of voluntary contributions. I think at the end of the day, successful climate action is not going to be driven by voluntary corporate commitments. I think that when we start to see CEOs walk back their commitments to net zero or investing in renewables, for example, we, we, we're starting to see the, the limits to which they're willing to go. Uh, I'm frankly much more upset about companies who are spending much more money on share buybacks and dividends than they are on investing in climate action. Because I think that's what suggests is that, well, they'll talk about climate action and it'll sound like a sensible strategic priority. I think what we're really seeing is the logic and the dominant logic of the market is still just more influential because the markets haven't adequately priced climate risk. And so we're all living in the carbon bubble where we think there's all this carbon out there and that carbon is going to make us money. And so we don't want to worry about upsetting that sort of that golden goose. But once we start pricing the risk of climate into that carbon bubble, suddenly that carbon is going to look a lot less attractive. So that's on the corporate side. I would just kind of summarize it. This is not hard. It forces moments of cognitive dissonance. And two, that I'm not going to rely on voluntary commitments to be there. And you're, it's, it's rare to hear this from a business professor, but maybe I'm like, yeah, regulate, regulate aggressively. That's actually what's required is, is coercive regulation if we're actually going to meet our targets. Now, at a national level, the big famous example out of the UK in the last few weeks I think is largely driven by someone thinking that playing around climate commitments is going to be good politics and that it's going to build a new political coalition or that it's they're trying to make an argument that walking away from commitments to net zero or bans on internal combustion engine by 2035, et cetera, that somehow that's going to be, you know, help salvage their political reputation. I'm not convinced of, of, I'm not particularly worried about what Rishi Sunak decided to do because one, I think, for example, in the internal combustion engine, not the UK not having a ban is not going to prop up the traditional car manufacturing industry. What's going to, the demise of the traditional car manufacturing industry is coming from BYD in China, where 43% of car sales in August were electric. It's going to come because the electric vehicle will become cheaper and more available at scale from a next generation, not of legacy manufacturers, but novel manufacturers who are just winning on cost. And secondly, if, if Rishi decides to walk back on their 2050 commitments, that just means they're going to miss out on the wave of climate capital that's looking for places to play. Now, 
Is climate capital struggling to find places to play in the UK right now? Sure. There's renewable energy stocks are taking a beating right now because they're facing a whole bunch of bottlenecks in their supply chain, right? They're not, they're facing difficulty with project deployment and they're facing difficulties around the financing of their climate projects. And so there's a lot of elements at play here, which may make it easy to sort of overreact to, let's say, what the CEO is doing or what the prime minister in the UK is doing. But I think in the long run, the logic of climate action it has a certain inevitability where once you start pricing in climate risk and you start seeing the huge opportunity in climate action, the markets are going to, you know, in their own self-interest and in their own greed are going to start allocating capital to the things that they don't think are just going to win in the next quarter, but they're going to win in 10, 20 or 30 years from now. So is this a financial incentive conversation or do we need to take more coercive measures? Well, I think we'd have to put in context who's the we here. So one of the challenges in Canada is that, one, even if we had very generous financial incentives, we are America's hat. And so as go the Americans, so goes Canada. And so when the Biden administration patches, passes the CHIP Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure bill that creates potentially trillions of dollars of incentives to invest in climate technology, it gets harder for us in Canada to compete. We just don't have the fiscal scale. We don't have the industrial scale. And we don't have the, I would say, unique American attribute of just really quickly deploying ideas once the the fertile soil has been prepared. I think we have to wake up to recognize that climate action means moving beyond our self-image as a commodity developer and start to embrace our self-image as a project developer and innovator. But I would also argue that some coercive measures will be required and it's that it's it's a, it's the appropriate kinds of coercive measures it's tempting to think that we can ban our way to climate action and maybe we can but i i i'm more inclined to think that we need to stick to our guns and if we've set a roadmap for a carbon price for example stick to that give industry certainty even if it's coercive certainty provide them certainty give them an insight into where they should be allocating capital in a carbon constrained world and i think they'll do a really good job finding the right solution the challenge with coercive measures is that when a government is facing a range of political issues it's kind of hard to stick to your guns so when the entire nation agrees that we have a cost of living crisis and a housing crisis i'm not surprised when people suddenly start ranking climate action as their third most important priority I think there's a huge lesson to be learned from the climate movement in the fact that now Canadians are more concerned about housing than cost of living, which is that if people aren't meeting their most fundamental needs, they're going to forget about climate. Even if it is an existential risk, at least existential to our way of life, it's going to go secondary to food on the table or a roof on their head. And so we better come up with climate solutions that are capable of having a politically durable coalition who want to support them. And climate solutions, which also ensure that people are having their other needs met, because we're not going to ask if we're asking people to sacrifice their way out of this crisis, if we're asking people to just pay more money in order to get out of this crisis. Don't be surprised when you suddenly get populist governments and rhetoric that upend all of the great progress we've made in the last 15 years around climate action. What do you see as the most significant barriers to closing the climate action gap? And the second part is what role does technology and innovation play in addressing that gap? So I think there's a few few barriers. Is one at the moment there's a political action gap 
because it's not necessarily good politics to be really coercive. And so I think telling a more simple, optimistic, and inclusive version of a climate story that helps bring along a broader coalition, recognizing that climate is not a culture war issue. Climate is just sensible. It's a, in a sense, climate is a conservative issue. It's protecting our institutions. It's protecting our land base. It's protecting our societal fabric. And, and getting more people involved in that conversation so that we can close that political action gap. So it becomes good, good policy becomes good politics. I think there's a financial gap because finance markets are largely underpricing carbon risk, this so-called carbon asset bubble. And I think that financial markets are desperate for regulatory certainty so they can deploy more climate capital. And in the Canadian context, I think this means looking at what American are doing and looking at the European Union and asking, are the tax incentives and structures that we're providing as lucrative, if not more lucrative than those competing jurisdictions. I think there's an expertise gap because everybody is convinced that they have the right answer to climate. And everyone thinks that no climate action means forest carbon. No climate action means electric vehicles. No climate action means banning fossil fuels. No climate action means all becoming farmers and staying at home and depriving ourselves of any ambition. I think what we have to recognize is that every discipline and every ideology has a view on climate that has its limits. There's real boundaries to the explanatory powers of these ideas. And so there's like intellectual humility that closes the action gap. And then finally, I think in particularly in the Canadian context, and this sort of segues into your next question, is that we have to start not just accelerating technology and innovation solutions in Canada, but we have to be scaling them in Canada. I, I would argue that the next six years are as much a deployment challenge as they are an innovation challenge. And so what I'd be what I would be obsessed with is figuring out what are some existing innovations where the technical risk is low and maybe the business risk is somewhat high or the business risk is at medium level. And what is it we can do to get them good advice, good mentorship, good support, and good policy so that we can as quickly as humanly possible start deploying those innovations and recognize that in deployment, there's going to be friction, there's going to be failure, there's going to be losses. But it's worth it because we need to be thinking about who are going to be the Canadian homegrown climate champions, because I think we have the intellectual capital here. I think we have the political capital. I think we have the financial capital. I think we have the will and the resources. And my big concern is that other jurisdictions make it more favorable, more desirable, more attractive to scale there to the benefit of those markets as opposed to scaling here in Canada. We know that there is some ambition. How can we convert this ambition into tangible actions? So is it policy, regulatory measures, or is it sort of separated by by region or level? So municipal, provincial versus federal governments? Like how can we really get this ambition turned into action? I think it's gonna be contextual. I think at the individual level, you know, there's good insight into consumer psychology and behavior that might nudge people to behave differently, uh, buy a more sustainable product, do a better job of recycling, better job of using a reusable mug, reusable bag. And, and that all adds up. I think that people who are behaving more sustainably are more likely to vote more sustainably, they're more likely to communicate more sustainably. And so if climate is a collective action problem, then there's a collective solution as well. But I also think from a policy perspective, I would argue that what we need is a, is a good deal of focus. So Canada should take a step back and ask itself as a country, what are the biggest contributors that we could potentially make uh, at a global scale to hitting some emergency breaks? Because I think that's what we need, right? We need this kind of 
like a like a religious focus on emergency breaks. What are some deployable solutions or deployable policy interventions that are available right now? Not that touch every feature of the economy or every part of the value chain, but like specific features. So for example, I think two of Canada's biggest contributions to arresting the climate crisis could be, what are we doing with our forests? If we don't figure out on a national level how to slow down the trend of these mega fires and these intense fire seasons, the emissions for our forest landscape are going to make the emissions from our industrial landscape look small by comparison. So what are we doing? And it's not going to be about wildfire detention and uh, uh, suppression or detection and suppression. It's going to be about wildfire prevention, which is all about figuring out where is the fire risk and how do you get in on land base and do interventions on the forest land base right away. Other area where Canada could make a huge contribution is what are we doing to drive down the price of the critical minerals and metals that are going to facilitate the climate economy. So I think those are two areas where it's it's economically feasible, it's socially desirable, it's environmentally consequential, and I think there's a, a version of a politically durable coalition behind that. And then we have to figure out what what do we want, what place do we want to play in the, in the sort of broader innovation landscape. And you could argue that Canada's got a few areas where we could really innovate. I think carbon capture and storage should be one. We certainly have very well capitalized energy companies who bet their entire future on carbon capture and storage. We have insights into the hydrogen economy, which I hope give us sort of a leadership position. We've got some very like old clean tech companies who've been here for a long time that understand a lot of the intellectual issues, the patent issues, the scaling issues associated with hydrogen. And I hope that what we can do is just kind of wake up culturally to this idea that, you know what, we can move fast. We can build at a huge scale. We can move with urgency in this space. And so I think that's a combination of CEOs recognizing that Canada is a good place to do business, markets recognizing that this is a low risk, high quality of governance environment to operate in, politicians who offer focused, inclusive messages around climate that doesn't just appeal to you know one side of this political spectrum or the other but instead builds this broad-based durable political coalition and then consumers who yeah they need to do everything they can to consume more sustainably on their own but also ask themselves how am i voting what are my priorities and how am i spending my life because where you put your professional energy is perhaps the most in consequential climate decision you make you spend a lot of time with youth and folks at different ages who are transitioning into the space. So you're educating, you're an educator and a thought leader. What are some of the primary takeaways that you are leaving these students and folks who are attending your classes and, and reading up on your work? So there's two key messages I, I try to leave them with is saying, look, despair is an ally of denial. If you look at the climate crisis and you're just so overwhelmed by it, it's too much. You can't wrap your head around it. I appreciate it. Empathize why you've arrived there, but also recognize that if all of your other needs are met, your need for housing and food and water and, and, and security are all met, that means you have time to think about the climate crisis. And that, in a sense, is a privilege. So screw despair. Bias yourself to action. Find a technology, find a policy solution, find a company and help them scale, right? The cl successful climate action is a giant building boom. It's, it's deploying resources, it's deploying capital, it's remaking industries and remaking cities, remaking landscapes at a massive scale. And so start just participating in action. 
But the other idea I leave them with is saying, look, you're 22. This isn't on you. It's not your problem. You don't have your levers over power. You don't have the technical skills. You don't have this knowledge of financial markets and inner workings. You don't have the political capital. You don't have the communication skills. Don't feel this burden to graduate UBC and tomorrow start feeling like you're going to be a climate leader. At the end of the day, this burden is on me. This is burden on, on folks who are in their 40s and who are in their 50s and are in positions of leadership who've been living with the reality of the climate crisis since 1992, if you've been paying any attention. And we are now in this position to, to, to stake our claim, to, to stand up for our beliefs, to stand up for our values, and to use the positions of, of power and authority that we have to force society to wake up to the intention action gap. And to do everything we possibly can to try and mobilize skills and capital and energy so that we can avoid the riskiest outcomes associated with the climate transition. So I say to youth, go out there, acquire skills, acquire power, acquire leverage, acquire experience. Because the reality of, of a 21-year-old looking at 2030, six years away, it's like by the time you're 27, you're not going to be the CEO of Suncor. It's not happening. So meanwhile, maybe what you should be doing is figuring out how to politically mobilize. Great. But also just cultivating a skill set, because what the youth of today are going to be doing is dealing with the climate transition of 2040 to 2050. Right. Net zero is a, is a long process. And so it's Jeanette and Justin's problem to figure out how do we get emissions down 50 percent in six years. And then there's going to be another generation who figures out what to do to 2030 and 2040 and another generation who figures out the roadmap from 2040 to 2050. This challenge isn't going away. And so they just need to be ready and, and prepared and have amassed the skills and capital and leverage and talents required so that no matter where we are, if we're ahead of progress, great, there'll be new environmental problems. If we're behind progress, great, then you're going to have even more opportunity to deploy with urgency and scale. Last but not least, uh, we've talked about all of the passionate folks and the youth and the training and the solutions, but we do have a significant amount of influence on this transition with policymakers, investors, and the corporate world. What are one or two takeaways you would give those listeners in terms of addressing the climate action gap? I would, I would start really simply with let the markets do their work. And markets have shown this ability to do things at scale with speed and urgency if you provide them certainty and stability. And if we were going to ask markets to do work around one thing, it would be pricing climate risk. And so I think the risk of stranded assets, I think a lot of carbon intensive industries are at risk of being a stranded asset. Do we do your scenarios, does your understanding of your portfolio, your equity and debt positions adequately price that carbon bubble? carbon that we think is valuable that will never get extracted? And have we adequately priced adaptation risk? Are we thinking about infrastructure decisions? Are we thinking about mortgage lending? Are we thinking about insurance markets through a risk lens? So find something, find the big stick, find the big lever. And I think pricing risk is probably the biggest one. The second is then to provide complete stability and certainty around the kind of policy incentives you want to introduce to provide, to promote climate in innovation investment. So don't try and do everything all at once. Pick them, pick the areas where we think we can be really consequential. Pick the areas where you think the return of investment is fantastic 
and provide the kind of stability and certainty that industry loves so that they can start deploying climate capital at scale. So this means I don't, I'm not a big believer that government is going to invest us out of this problem. I don't think government has enough money to invest their way out of this particular challenge. But if they can figure out what are the two, three, four critical market-friendly climate policies that they think could unlock climate capital, that's where I'd put my energy. Closing the climate action gap is clearly an enormous task with a ton of factors that are causing many organizations, governments, and businesses to choose not to take meaningful action on climate change. What we need is a combination of supportive policy changes, innovation and adoption, international collaboration, and a transition to more sustainable practices. We need to be more aggressive moving forward. This is a complex challenge, but with concerted efforts, it's possible to bridge the gap and work towards a more sustainable future. As Justin pointed out, the best solutions are likely the ones that are economically feasible, socially desirable, and environmentally consequential. These are clear markers that should be easy to rally behind and form a durable coalition around, but we need to move fast. The window for an orderly transition is finite and closing quickly. I've hoped you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the Clean Tech Forward podcast wherever you listen and to share this episode with your friends and colleagues. The environment is depending on you. We'll see you next time. To learn more about Foresight's programs, events, and more, visit us at foresightcac.com or follow us on social at foresightcac.com.